Let's open the Word of God together once again to the epistle of James. Would you find James? And this morning we'll find the fourth chapter beginning in verse 4. Recently we've been talking about the believer's relationship to the world. And we've examined three tests that James has applied to any claim to be a follower of Jesus. You might recall how we've spoken of the test of a controlled tongue and the test of a compassionate heart. These are tests that James lays out for us in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And now we come to consider the world, the third test. And with regard to the world, James writes in chapter 1, verse 27, that those who follow Christ must be determined to keep themselves unstained from the world. And that is the test that is before us this morning. We've already observed how the language that James often uses is is most direct. And as he gets to this place, chapter 4, verse 4, he speaks with even greater directness. The subject matter is serious, the danger is real, and what is at stake is most important. And so James takes that test of the believer's relationship with the world, and he elaborates it now in chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, and we'll read through verse 10, the word of the Lord. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The word of the Lord. And now may the Lord bless the preaching of his word. The test of the world, the believer's relationship to the world. Believers must keep themselves unstained, he says. Well, as we come to chapter 4, verse 4, James begins to explain what he means by that. And in verse 4, he tells us there's something most obvious that we ought to know. We ought to already know this, and it has to do with our connection to the world. Now, remember that the word world, as James is applying it here, speaks of all of lost humanity in desperate opposition to God and to our Lord. The world, as James speaks of it here, is the sum of lost men, including their institutions and structures and philosophies and those things that are always opposed to the reign of God and His kingdom. But the world, as we've often seen, as we've often noted, is also the place we must live and serve the Lord. We've been deposited here. We've been stationed here to shine as lights. And and we're to represent the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we're to do that in the world. And so we're, we're not to leave the world, but to we're 
to, to resist the world, to, to not let the world stain us, James says. This is a world that is dangerous, but it is also passing away. It is a world that is opposed at every point to the reign of Christ. The danger James is addressing is that of becoming too close to the world, too familiar, too comfortable, to be at ease or to be at home. And so James speaks a warning. He speaks with great power. And he warns us against choosing carelessly. Notice the words of verse 4. Whoever wishes, whoever chooses to be the friend of the world, whoever knows better, who knows what the world is and still chooses that, here's a warning. Do you not know? Something you ought to know. Here's the obvious. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Here is the most basic truth that that every believer ought to know. We ought to know this as well as we know the back of our own hands. No follower of Jesus should be unaware of this, that to be the friend of the world is to be the enemy of God. The world hates us. The world we live in, the world we bear witness to is is a world that has rejected our Father, rejected the Savior. This is the world that crucified Jesus. This is the world that's opposed to everything we believe and everything we've become in Christ. And if we cultivate any friendly alliance or any friendly association with this world, then that is, by definition, hostility to God. And that's what we should know. Friendship with the world, another way to say it is, is disloyalty to Christ. The world is at war with God and at war with us. It has been truly said that a person, a believer in Jesus, quote, cannot be friendly with the world and with God at the same time. The world does not tolerate friends of God, and the reverse is true. You see what James says we ought to know? We ought to know this. Whoever adopts the values and the lifestyle of the world and can live comfortably with it, moving in and out as if at home, makes himself the enemy of God. And that that should be unthinkable for us. And and what has just been so convicting to me as I've meditated on this passage is that James is talking to the church. He is saying it's possible for a church to be the enemy of God. A terrifying expression, the enemy of God. Well, it's happened before. And it'll happen again. There's an illustration in 2 Timothy of this very thing, of of a man. Paul is writing to Timothy, the young minister. He's giving him his job description. He's telling him how to to build a church, how to organize the church, how to, to govern the church. He is giving Timothy a philosophy of ministry. In the course of that, he Often, as he would do, he speaks of people he knows. Paul begins to name names. 
And he speaks quite candidly. He speaks of a man named Demas. Demas was an associate of Paul. Demas was a fellow missionary. Demas, in, in, in one way of seeing it, he, he worked for and, and with Paul. He was a trusted associate. He is mentioned in other letters. He is a, a fellow missionary with Paul. But when it comes to Paul writing 2 Timothy, he mentions Demas in a totally different light. He says in 2 Timothy 4.10... Just in passing, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And you see, here's a man who became God's enemy, an associate of the Apostle Paul, a leader in the church who, as Paul says, fell in love with the world and he deserted me because you cannot serve two masters. And this is the concern James has, that there might be among us a Demas. Or even worse yet, that the entire congregation might become the friend of the world and therefore the enemy of God. A scary proposition. Now maybe you're, you're wondering why James writes with such almost offensive clarity. Why would he use words that push us back? For instance, he, he calls his audience adulteresses. What if I started worship, the call to worship, and I said, welcome, adulteresses? <laughs> It'd be shocking. But in effect, that's what James, the brother of Jesus, has done. Now, why that, that language? Well, the reason is, number one, James is building on the rich theological themes of the Old Testament as he addresses his people. He is using the language of election. He is using covenantal language. He is using the language of holy matrimony, because that's how the Lord views his people. He viewed Israel in covenantal matrimonial terms as those people upon whom he had set his sovereign love, and they belonged to him. They were his bride. In fact, in the Old Testament, Israel is called the bride of Yahweh. And we know from our study of the New Testament that the New Testament picks up that same rich theme and applies it to the church. We are the bride of Christ. And so the language of adultery fits the crime, doesn't it? If we go off loving someone else, we have left our husband and violated the sanctity and the sacredness of the covenantal bond that he established with us. And so that's why James is speaking so dramatically. The New Testament just simply makes this louder that we belong to the Lord, we don't belong to the world, and we can't go affiliating with the world in an ungodly way. We can't associate with the world in a forbidden way. Yes, that's our mission field, and we love our neighbors, and we want to carry them the gospel, but that is not our home. That's not our master. When Paul writes the Corinthian letter about 
55 AD. He will use the same language. He will say, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now that's why the language is so strong. To to love the world is spiritual adultery. But James isn't through. Look at verse 5. Not only does he highlight this covenantal matrimonial relationship, but look at, look at what else he says in verse 5. He, the Lord, yearns jealously, jealously over the Spirit, and I would interpret this as the Spirit of God. He yearns jealously over the Spirit he has made to dwell in us. All the more reason to be serious. God is a jealous God. He has a holy jealousy. And his jealousy is highlighted here as being focused on the fact that when he saved us, he deposited the Spirit of God in us. And he is jealous over that which his Spirit possesses. Do you see the point? In fact, in the book of Exodus, God revealed himself to the covenant people this way. He said, my name, my holy name is Jealous. Several commentators have offered great insight into this line in verse 5. One says, what James means is that God's people are indwelt by God's Spirit. And there is no way in which living in the Spirit is compatible with the sinful yearnings and promptings of self-interest. We can't serve the world. We belong to the one who has married us, sovereignly set his love on us, and then deposited in us his very Spirit. Another says this. James is telling us that God has put his Holy Spirit within the Christian and regards with intense concern the Christians harboring any rival spirit in his heart. God claims us entirely for himself. No alien relationship will be tolerated by him. He wants the undivided attention of every Christian heart. This is is the point James is making. So James is sternly warning us. He is warning us against worldliness. He is warning us against, as John Blanchard writes, he's warning us against going back in spirit to what we were before we were converted. Of going back to the place where we were antagonistic to God. Of standing at Calvary uncommitted to Christ. That's the warning. The positive side, James is trying to to build up in the people of God this this sense that we will perpetually strive after personal holiness and we'll do it in the midst of all the world's demoralizing and distracting influences. We've been put in the world by the Lord. He owns us. He indwells us. And yet we have to serve him in purity. We can't be stained by the world that is our mission field. 
Everything in our lives is to bear the mark of loyal service to Jesus. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. More and more as I've read and reread and prayed through and agonized over this beloved epistle, I've been very, very convinced, become very convinced that James would have been a great pastor, was a great pastor. Maybe you don't see his pastoral love now flowing from even a rebuke. Because at this point, as he gets to verse 6, he addresses, he addresses me. He addresses you. When I read verses 4 and verses 5, there's a weight on me, and I, and I want to say this is overwhelming. How, how do I fight? How do I avoid worldliness? How do I keep from being polluted? I'm already polluted. Where, where is the hope? How will I ever be useful in God's kingdom? The, 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 the enemy of the Lord is the last thing I want to be, but I know, I know I've been that because I've, I've loved the world, and I, I, I wonder where is the hope? Being the wise pastor that he is, James gives us some hope. In the middle of all this strong language, here is a promise. We are not to be overwhelmed by the viciousness of the battle or the looming threat of worldliness. James says, the Lord gives more grace. And you can see, he gives more grace to stand in opposition to the world. Oh, it's true. The Lord who has redeemed us makes great demands on us. But he also makes great provision for us. Our Father is on our side as we resist the world, as we resist the stains of the world. James is giving us a promise to stand on. Maybe you didn't notice this, but the words that he speaks in this verse come right out of Proverbs 3. James, as he does so often, is simply quoting the Lord. In Proverbs 3, 34, the word says, though he scoffs at the scoffers, he gives grace to the afflicted. Or as James renders it, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you're overwhelmed right now, that's what you should be. Because there's grace for you. And look at this. This is amazing. Everybody here knows God has given you grace. You know that you were saved by grace. No one here would dispute that. You, you know that. God's grace fell on you and you trusted Christ and, and you were justified and you became a new creation in Christ Jesus. Everybody has that. But did you know that is not when he stops giving you grace. That's when he started. There is the grace that saves and justifies, but there is also his continuing 
grace. And this is the grace James is talking about. The Lord gives grace. And he gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he's always giving grace to his people. There is always coming down from heaven an unending flow of love and mercy and the power to do what he has commanded. He gives grace, and he gives it tomorrow, and he gives it next hour, and next moment, and next year, and in 20 years, if we're all still here, there will be fresh grace for the fight, continuing grace. Many of you are either active or were once active in the military community. And you're very familiar with the phrase being dropped behind enemy lines. I think of a movie, I'm having a senior moment on the title, Lone, Lone Survivor, there we go. That movie that details the horrific events of several years ago when our special forces operators were dropped behind enemy lines to carry out a very secret mission with no nearby support, simply dropped behind enemy lines. You've got a mission. And if you get in trouble, we'll try to find you, but we can't get there quick. And if you're special forces, that what, that's what you do. You go out in teams of four or five. Maybe you go out alone and you're dropped behind enemy lines and help is not nearby. And many of us think that that's what the Christian life is. That the Lord has just thrown us out into enemy territory and we're on our own. We've been dropped behind enemy lines. We've been thrown into the middle of the river and now we have to swim and help is not nearby. Now that's not true, brothers and sisters. That makes a great movie, but it is not Christianity. He has not dropped you behind enemy lines with no support. He's saved you in community with other sinners and he is giving you a constant supply of grace. You are not alone. This is what Paul meant when he said, you, you fight in the Lord's strength. This is what he was talking about in Ephesians 6 when he says, now look, don't pick up your armor, pick up my armor. You take my truth and you wrap yourself up in my truth and you carry my word and you be strong, listen to this, be strong in the strength of the Lord, not your own. You never fight alone. The Apostle John would even make it clearer. He said, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. There is from heaven a constant flow of grace. But watch this. Don't miss this part. When does this grace come? Well, in this passage, the grace comes as we obey. In just a moment... He is going to list our duties, and we're going to hit every one of them quickly, but he'll list our duties. 
Grace does not come to us in the abstract. It does not come to us in an isolated way, like a package from FedEx. It comes to us on the field of battle, in the midst of the fight, as we trust Him, as we do what He has commanded. The abundant grace that God gives, that's essential for us, is ours along the road of obedience. His continuing grace does not come to us when we're passive, when we're disobedient, when we're uncommitted. No, His helping grace comes to us in the war, in our resistance, in our pursuit of God's holiness. And there, when we're fighting, we find His strength to fight. When we admit our weakness when we admit our inadequacy for the battle, as we humble ourselves before him and call out for his mercy and strength, his grace comes, his grace comes, his grace comes as we cooperate with him, as we submit to him, as pride goes away, as self-sufficiency goes out the window, when we need his grace. It's a matter of timing, not earning. We don't earn anything from our Father. We don't earn his continuing grace. It's a matter of timing. When do we get it? We get it as we obey, as we fight, as we resist, as we do what the Lord has commanded us to do. Well, I spoke of those duties we have, and you can see that the apostle, or rather the brother of our Lord James, begins to lay those out. And you can see, you can see what he's doing. He is telling us that grace now, grace accompanies our actions. In fact, grace moves us into action. So as we resist, now there's a plan of battle. There's a specific battle plan laid out. And we'll run through this very quickly. But look at what we must do to be unstained by the world. Verse 7. Submit to God. The grace for submission comes as we submit. What does it mean to submit to the Lord? It simply means that I yield obedience to the Father, that I place myself under His authority, that I pray that my will will be under the control of His will, and that I might offer to my Lord a joyful and cordial obedience in every matter. Submit. And as I submit, there is even more grace to submit. Verse 7, resist. Resist the devil. That's the other side of our submission to the Lord. Our submission to the Lord entails our resistance of the devil. We can only live under the rule of one sovereign, If I serve the Lord, then I resist the devil. If I serve the devil, if I serve his kingdom, I resist the Lord. That's the simple math involved. By our very submission to Christ, we stand in opposition to the designs and purposes of Satan. Just the sheer prayer, Lord, be Lord. Lord, let me obey you. Lord, I submit to you. That is a missile into the nose of the devil. 
And so James says, submit and resist. You might recall the words of the Apostle Peter, your adversary, the devil. Oh, he's out there prowling around like a lion, always roaring, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Resist him firm in your faith. Resist him as you submit to Christ, as you trust the Lord. You'll be able to resist him. There will be grace for your resistance. And when you resist, you know what he does? He flees. Here it is in the Word of God. When we submit to Christ and when we resist, He will run. In the neighborhood I grew up on Elm Street in Coleman, Alabama, we'd have called him a fraidy cat. He's a fraidy cat. He hears the name Jesus. He sees a humble saint on his or her knees calling out for mercy. And the devil can just run from that. He has no ammo against that. that that's how he runs. And you must believe that's true for you. And then verse 8. Draw near to God. Draw near. I love John Blanchard's commentary. Please forgive me for overquoting him. I did write this sermon. But John has a great quote. There are two views the Christian ought to covet more than any other. One is the devil's back and the other is God's face. Draw near to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. What does that mean? Well, James is talking to the church. Now, we, we are tempted to read this as soldiers in our own armies, as free agents, lone soldiers. That is not in view here. James is telling the church corporately to draw near to God. Now, it, it is absolutely true that in our private times of worship and communion with the Lord, we draw near to him. Indeed, indeed, that is true. And I would say that is essential, but that's not what's on the plate here. What's on the plate is James is saying the people of God, the elect, the church, must together draw near to God. And if you do, he will draw near to you. James is thinking about those little house churches in Asia Minor or scattered out in the Roman Empire somewhere who come together and draw near to God. They leave the workaday world and they come together, many of them early in the morning on the Lord's Day, 6 a.m. before they went to work. They come, they come, and they draw near to the Lord. They, they, they sit under the preaching of the Word. They pray together. They, they sing hymns together. They confess their sins together. They confess their faith together. They draw near to the Lord. And then in those little homes, the Spirit of God descends and the Lord is with them. Now that's the picture James is painting. We draw near as a covenant family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And those who do not actively and faithfully (coughs) participate in the life of the local body of believers have no assurance of God's assisting grace or His presence. Do you see that? Oh, this is a rebuke to our obsessive individualism. This is a rebuke to those who who have no church membership, who are not moving toward church membership. I don't blink telling you that. I am absolutely convinced of that. That's not being harsh. That's the New Testament model. We are a body together. There is no Christianity envisioned in the New Testament made up of free agents. We are lumped together in local bodies, joined by vow, who gather together and draw near to the Lord. And if a person is not in one of those assemblies of the Lord, there is no promise of assisting grace and no promise that he will draw near to you. You're on your own. We draw near in the midst of our struggles together. We bring our sins and our fears together to the sanctuary and we call on the name of the Lord together and we look around and we see people that we have made vows to love and to be committed to and we deal with each other's messes with the grace of Jesus. And even in dealing with our messes and sharing our victories and our joys and our sorrows, He is with us, giving us grace. This is the picture. This is the picture of the Christian life that we need to embrace. And as we draw near, Lord's day after Lord's day, our Father, our Father comes. And I can say to you, with all the strength I have and with all the conviction I have, that the Lord God is here today. He is here. And that's worth getting up for. He is here. And he is here with grace. (laughs) Whatever is going wrong, there's grace for that. Whatever is blowing up in your life, whatever sin you are being whipped by, whatever fracture in your heart, whatever fear, whatever doubt, there is grace for that. And more grace, and more grace, and more grace. And so we draw near. And that's what we do in worship. We, we draw near to him. Well, James isn't quite finished. What else must we do? Verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, strong words, strong medicine for severe sickness. James is calling us here to confess specific sins, to do whatever is necessary to keep our hearts pure. We do it privately. We we read the Bible and we 
go into our closets, as Jesus said, and we pray and we confess our sins privately. Then we come together on the Lord's day, and what do we do? We confess our sins. And we resolve in the grace of the Lord to do whatever we have to do to keep our lives pure. What must be thrown out of your house today? What changes must we make to be loyal to Jesus, specifically? Confess them. Repent. The entire Christian life is one of repentance and purification. So cleanse yourselves. Purify yourselves. There's grace for that. Verse 9. And then you need to be wretched a while and mourn and you need to weep and you need to let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Maybe for some of us that's the hardest part, isn't it? What what in the world does that mean? James is talking about the fact that holy sorrow must be a part of our common experience together. Holy sorrow. Now, he's not saying that we're to become dark and gloomy people who have no joy. Because we can talk about those verses that that promise the joy of the Lord and that his people would be represented as a community of joy. But he's simply saying that there's a significant place in our lives for sorrow over our sins and sorrow over the sins of the world we've been commissioned to reach. Godly sorrow. In other places in the Bible, this virtue is called sober-mindedness. James would say, we don't laugh off our sins, and we don't laugh off the sins of the world. We don't trivialize our sins, and we don't trivialize the sins of the world or the gospel that is their blessed remedy. Do you see the mathematics here? If we're not serious about our sins, then we cannot be serious about our Savior. We cannot be serious about his blood that was spilled to wash away our sins. There there must be sober-mindedness about who we are and what we've done and what Jesus has done for us. We need to allow the Lord to break our hearts occasionally. And that's a good thing. We need to sing some songs as we do in a minor key sometimes. A broken and contrite heart, David said in Psalm 51, is something the Lord will never despise. He welcomes his people when their hearts are broken by their own sin. And you know what he does? another delivery of grace arrives. And the joy of the Lord, the joy of His salvation, fills our hearts. Has your heart been broken recently over your sins? Are you weeping 
for your sins? Or are you laughing them off? James brings this section of the epistle to a conclusion in verse 10. You know, I really wish we had more time. But James brings it to an end. Look at the way James offers a promise again, as a good pastor would, a word of hope. Whoever exalts himself, and he's talking to the church, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, guaranteed. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He's taken us through the steps of our self-humility. Submission, resistance, drawing near, confession, repentance, weeping, mourning. And the promise at the end of the line is, now that you've humbled yourself, do you know what the Lord is going to do for you? He is going to exalt you. Now, when we think of this word being exalted, again, the world has, has brainwashed us, hasn't it? We, we, we think of, okay, American Idol. You know, I'm going to come out in the, in, in the spotlight and, and everybody in this, in this neighborhood, everybody in the world is finally going to realize how smart I am and I'll finally be exalted for the person I am. And that, that is not, that is not at all, that is not at all what the Lord is promising. He's promising something a lot better than that. James is promising something his older brother promised. Listen to these words from Matthew 23. Again, whoever exalts himself, Jesus said, James is virtually repeating that, will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is what James says in verse 10. Once we've humbled ourselves, then he will exalt us. When will this happen? It will not happen now. It's going to happen later. In Psalm 30, we get a little bit of an Old Testament glimpse of this. The psalmist says, weeping, weeping may tarry for the night, but, but what joy comes in the morning. Now, when, when is the morning? Well, the morning isn't tomorrow. The morning is when the Lord comes and our tombs break open and our resurrected bodies arise and the Lord is explicitly revealed as king. It's that morning that the psalmist looked forward to, the joy of that morning. We will be exalted then. Again, Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore now humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now you're casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. But one day he will exalt you. And this is what you live for. That's what James is saying. This is what you live for. Could I be so crass as to say, this is the payoff for serving Jesus. 
He will exalt you. He will raise you from the dead. When Paul wrote the letter to Philippi, he said, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Here's the payoff who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That day is when you will be exalted. And that's what we live for. Something certain. Something that is going to happen. There may be some in this building who will be alive when the Lord returns. I used to think I would be among them. Now as I'm looking into 60 years of age, I'm not so sure about that. But let me tell you what I do know. I'm going to be raised from the dead. That's what I know. And that's what you can know. And as we humble ourselves and love him and trust him and submit to him, we do it not only empowered by God's grace, but clinging to this promise that he will raise us from the dead. That's the greatest thing we could ever be given. He will exalt us. That's worth living for. That's worth sacrificing for. That's worth laboring for. That's worth loving for. That's worth forgiving for. That's worth resisting for. That's worth everything. He will consummate his grace by giving us in actual possession eternal life. What a God we serve. Let us resist the world for the sake of the one who gives us such grace. May the name of the Lord be praised. Would you prepare your heart to come to the table? As you tarry in the spirit of prayer, would you open your order of service to our morning confession of faith?